I give thanks for Craig's encyclopedic knowledge of all things related to dance. Is dance not fundamental to the human experience, right? And the reason we showed you that, I hope, would become obvious, is that song is made for dance. Dance depends on song. They just go together like peanut butter and jelly. At the turning of a year, and we're just barely into the year, right? At the turning of a year, we're also turning a corner. We're turning a corner in, in a letter that we've been listening to all the way since September. A letter that is written by what we who believe it to be the Apostle Paul, written to who we believe was some fledgling churches of the first century. And we believe that that letter, shocker, was all about the gospel. But that that letter was broken up into two parts. And we've said that the first half of the, go- the, first half of the letter is all about the song of the gospel. And where we're transitioning this morning is to the second half of the letter. It's all about the dance of the gospel. They go together. They're distinct parts, but they're inseparable from one another. Now, all of that was light and lovely and fun, and it touched every generation and everything like that. If, I, if you will, allow me to thicken it up a little bit. Thicken up just how critical it is that we understand this relationship between the song of the gospel and the dance of the gospel, and, and there is no better way of thickening up a moment than invoking Russians. I hear the Russians are in the news a lot. When are they not, right? But if you remember from the very first week we started this series, we invoked a moment from that Russian novel, Dr. Zhivago by Boris Pasternak, which, remember the setting in which that novel was written. It's during communism, where atheism was the state mandate, and yet it was a culture that was built upon Jesus and Christianity for a thousand years before that ever happened. And everybody who was a philosopher or alike or a theologian or not realized that there was something enduring about Jesus. And in this little battle and collision of conversations about philosophy, there is one character in that story that says this about what most motivates people. And he said this, I think that if the beast who sleeps in man could be held down by threats, any kind of threat, whether of jail or of retribution after death, then the highest emblem of humanity would be the lion tamer in the circus with his whip. Not the prophet who sacrificed himself. That's Jesus, by the way. But this is just the point. What has for centuries raised man above the beast is not the club, but an inward music. The irresistible power of an unarmed truth. You want to motivate somebody? You can use fear. You can use threat. You can use coercion, and that will work to a point and have a certain quality of responsiveness to it. But when you're talking about unarmed truth as it is embodied in Jesus, not only the example of unarmed truth, but what his version of unarmed truth did and accomplished for us, that's different. That reaches more deeply than just the fear of punishment. That becomes and inward music. And if you wanted to summarize what we mean by the inward music from the first three chapters of the letter to the church at Ephesus, it's this. You're forgiven. You're reconciled. You've been adopted. You have been united to him by faith. And you are beloved. Can you imagine how your life would be different if you really believed those things right now. 
The extent to which those ideas reach into you is the extent to which everything changes. That's music. And that music provokes and prompts a response. And we're calling that response the dance. You've seen how song and dance go together. This morning we begin anew about the dance. Look, last week when Andrew preached on chapter 3, verses 14 through whatever it was, we started that year, this year, in the only place we should have, on our knees. Because that text was all about reminding us we don't have it in us to believe that that love is real. We need strength in our inner being with that inward music that we are all those things that he said to us. That's where we started. And we have to. This dance depends on that strength. So we're going to remember that part and move on into chapter 4. But we're going to figure out what does he mean by the dance. So that's where we're going. And the way to introduce that dance is to talk, under, talk about it under three heads. What is the dance? What are the moves? What is the beat? What is this dance? What are those moves? What is the beat? We'll start in Ephesians. We'll, we'll pick up from where Andrew preached last week, and then we'll proceed into chapter 4. So, if you're here, I wonder, could you stand? Let's start there. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. I, I have to say to you at the beginning of this part of the letter, um, you're rather odd. What a wonderful way of putting it. And I mean it in this way. You're still listening to sermons. Do you realize what kind of marvel that is of anybody listening to sermons? It, it's so old, and you're still doing it, and I, I, I give thanks. And some of you are going, you're right, this is nuts, I'm out of here. <laughs> but this passage is not just a text of Scripture. It is, in some ways, an explanation of what a sermon is and what you should always expect from a sermon. 
what is a sermon out to do? It is out to explain to you what is there, but it is also, to borrow Paul's word, to urge you into something. It is not only to tell you what this passage means, it is also there to tell you why it matters. It is here to say unto you, always and forever, what first has the Lord done for you? And then, what is it that we are to do in response? And it's always in that order, and they are, what God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. That's what sermons do. And that's what this passage does. It showcases for us not only something that, what its meaning is and why it matters, but what is a sermon all about? And so, what is Paul urging? Paul is urging you and I to take part in a dance. I'm using that metaphorically. What is the dance? The dance is what you heard in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The word there is urge. There is, this is not the word of, um, you know, if you get around to it. Or, you know, among other options, you might consider this one. Or, let me just suggest to you something for your consideration. I'm urging you. I am, I am staring you in the face, and I'm trying to persuade you to something. What is that? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now that's a mouthful. Let's, let's slow the tape and take it apart piece by piece. What does he mean by walk? It is not a Monty Python ministry of silly walks. It is not that. It is, it's the simplest terms in, of, of it's, it's, it's a call to life. It is a way of living. It is to borrow a uh, Perhaps the most formidable atheist of the last 200 years, Friedrich Nietzsche, it is a long direction in the same, a long obedience in the same direction. It is a belief that shapes a life. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas is a kind of a curmudgeonly theologian out there uh, who, who, who loves to kind of stir the pot a little bit, but I, straight up, he, he says something really strong here where he says this. Um, I do not put much stock in believing in God. The grammar of belief invites a far too rationalistic account of what it means to be a Christian. I'm far more interested in what a declaration of belief entails for how I live my life. Uh-oh. That, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But it's salvation unto a life. And that's the dance. But as soon as I say those words about a life, or to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. There are any number of you in this room, myself included, who perhaps shudder a little bit on that word worthy. Because as soon as I hear it, there's, is there not a part of us that goes, great, something else I can fail at. I'm already failing at this, these 14 things. I came into this room hoping to have forgotten those 14 things at least for an hour, right? And now you're telling me one more thing. Let's talk about that. The, word there for, the, 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 the original language there for the word worthy, it fits. I mean, if you look in every single one of Paul's letter, he speaks of walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, just in different words. It fits. But when you and I hear the word worthy, we unfortunately, we might read it correctly, but we mishear it. The way we can mishear it is that you can hear the word walk in a manner worthy and think that your worth to God 
is determined and defined by how worthily of a manner you walk in the calling to which you've been called. That your worth is determined by how worthily you walk. Stop that. That makes no sense. How do you know that you're beloved? That is explained by the fact that God sent his son before you could do anything. He decided to give up what was most precious to him before you lifted a finger. When we were still enemies, Paul says in Romans 5, Christ died for us. That sounds like love and worth was already established. No, your worth to God is not contingent upon the worthiness of the way in which you walk. Now, to be sure, the calling to which you have been called, it entails new priorities, new affections, new loves, new lines in the sand, new prohibitions for life. But all of that comes from somewhere else. It comes, first of all, from a new status. That calling to which you have been called by the Spirit is the Spirit who confirms to you that, as I've already said at the beginning of the sermon, you're forgiven, you're reconciled, you're adopted, you're united, you're beloved. Full stop. To walk worthily of the call is therefore, it's best perhaps to interpret that phrase as saying, are you walking in a way that fits your new status? Does it fit this identity that you have been given, that you do not merit, that you need not prove? It's an identity that is, un- is, is unfolded unto you by his work, not yours. Does it fit? Let me, let me bring that very big thought down to here. Um, how many times have I, have I walked downstairs on a Sunday morning and, and my wife and daughter look at me at what I'm wearing and shudder a little bit, like I've just walked downstairs with a severed head, um, Look at me like, is, is that the only coat you have? Um, or where did you think, like, were you in the dark when you picked that out of the closet? In so many words, they're looking at me and they're saying, I love you, but that does not match. It doesn't fit. Uh, beloved, welcome guests, theists and atheists alike, what is, what is the Lord saying to us at every juncture at some points? Does that fit with who you are? Does that identity match up with this decision, that word, this priority, that motivation, that attitude? Does it fit? Sometimes spot on. And a lot of other times, the Lord looks at you and goes, I love you, but that does not match. The dance is learning to walk in a way that our life begins to resemble that identity that we have been given. Not that we earn, not that we merit, but that what we've received. Now, it's a dance, and as with any dance, there are plenty of possibilities for missteps. And, and in this room, there's at least two kinds of missteps that you and I can fall into. One misstep is to live with this, whether conscious or unconscious, undercurrent of dread and fear that I will always have two left feet to the Lord, that, that it's like I'm on an episode of America's Got Talent and God is Simon Cowell, right? Simon Scowl. 
Not pushing that button. Buzz. It's how you see God. God is carrying around a clipboard. And he's checking off all the things in which you screwed up. And you think, huh. Beloved? I don't think he thinks I'm beloved. I think he, if he does so, it's because he has to tolerate me, and begrudgingly so. That's one misstep you can take in this dance, is to walk with an undercurrent of dread about how the Lord sees you. The other one, the other one is, is thinking that, you know, the Lord has done everything for me. And therefore, I think he requires nothing of me. And if he does, it should only be when I feel like it. So, uh, picture, if you will. Um, you're a spouse, um, and uh, you have an infant child, and your wife has gotten up for the third time to feed, and it's 4 a.m., and the baby cries again, and she nudges you and says, could you? I'm whooped. And you say, uh, I don't feel like it. And I think I shouldn't have to if I don't feel like it. So, fathers of young children, if you want to try that tonight, <laughs> um, just record it for us, will you? Let us, let us know how that goes. And, and that's, a, that's a fantastical example, but if you could never say that to your spouse, can you ever imagine saying that to Jesus? Yeah, I don't really feel like it. There are plenty of ways in which I love and I have absolutely no, <laughs> oh, this is so wonderful, I'm in ecstasy, I'm so glad I'm doing this. No. That's the other misstep. That's the dance. L let me summarize it to you in, in one line. I, I, I saw this on Twitter this week. There's a, a young woman named Catherine Addington who's about to enter a convent and take her vows as a nun and she had this quote up from a, a 16th century priest named St. Francis de Sales, he, he said this, let us be what we are and let us be it well to do honor to the master whose work we are. Be what we are, not let's become um, something so that I'll know that he loves me. Let's just be what we are. And what are we? We're forgiven. We're reconciled. We're adopted. We're united by faith. We are Beloved, that's the dance. And as soon as you hear all of that, you go, that's, a, that's quite a dance. Um, where do I start? And, you know, that's a great question because for the remainder of the letter, Paul is going to take from paragraph to paragraph, he's going to take this idea of walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called and kind of tease it out for the rest of the letter. Where can you and I start with just this big, big idea? Well, fortunately, he has given us a context, and that's the second thing I want to talk about. We've talked about the dance, but now I want to talk about the moves. Now, when you go dance, there's, you always dance in a space, and especially if it's you know, a ballroom and things like that, there's, there's a hall that you're dancing in, and, and it's in that space, on that floor, in that area, that you learn the steps. If you're a Christian, then to learn the steps of this dance, where do you learn that? Not here so much in the room, but here among the people. This is your hall. This is where you learn the dance. 
in this community. Now, uh, in real dance, in the, in the dance like you saw demonstrated there, there's all sorts of things that the dancers are, are aware of. They're variables that they're, they're having to consider. And if you go online and you say, what are the fundamentals of dancing? And they'll talk about all these rules and, and variables like uh, space and form and time and shape and center of gravity. All of these things that dancers become aware of at one point until it becomes sort of intuitive under their point such that they mature into that, more on that next week, and it becomes graceful. What are the moves of this dance among this people? That's what you hear in verse 2. We walk worthily of the calling to which we've been called. How? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Again, let's take that sort of carefully. Two sets of pairs there, almost two dancing duos that are doing this dance together with humility and gentleness. Now, humility is so often misunderstood. It's, we, we, we think of it as, well, if I'm, if I'm so bad that God had to die for me in Jesus, then, then, then humility is self-hatred, it's self-loathing, it's self-deprecation. None of those are true. How do you hate some, How do you hate a self that God died for? It doesn't fit. It doesn't match. This humility is selfless. It is self-forgetful. It is something other than you on your mind constantly. And is that not the hardest thing any of us could ever do? If he were here, he would hate that I was saying it. But if we were reminded of what it looks like to be humble, we renew that in the person of Dick Lindsay who died last week and who we remembered on Friday. Anybody that knew him knew that he had somebody else on his mind, and that man died as he lived to serve. You can talk about humility in the abstract all you want, but if you want a picture of that, all you got to do is look at him. That's a picture of humility. And that humility is paired with gentleness. Now, gentleness is, again, another word that we can easily kind of go, oh, it's so sweet. It's what he taught. What is gentleness? That word there that Paul uses is, is a, a derivative of the same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Which is a word that we misunderstand entirely. If, you, if you're meek, what does that mean? Oh, that means you're passive. You're maybe almost a doormat. Um, you never have any opinions. Uh, you're just sort of quiet all the time. That's how people typically or, uh, understand meekness. That's not gentleness. That's not meekness. It does involve care. It does, does recognize that much of what you handle at times requires the kind of um, carefulness and, and, and thoughtfulness and mindfulness that you would if you're holding and, you know, some of your, your great-grandmother's porcelain. But if you want to know what gentleness is, any, anybody remember Coco the gorilla? Like I, he died a few years ago, Coco. Huge gorilla. They taught him sign language, right? I, I remember a, a scene of Robin Williams and Coco getting together, hoping that Robin Williams didn't do something stupid so that he could get punched. But Coco, huge gorilla on National Geographic, learned all of this stuff. But if you know Coco, you might also remember that there was a time where they put a kitten in Coco's hands, right? And so there's this famous picture of Coco holding a kitten. And look, 
You know what Coco could have done? Squish that kitten really right there. And this like silly putty with fur. But it could have been that way. It could have gone that way. It could have. There's strength. But the strength that, that holds and cradles something that intuitively you know, I'm going to hold that. It's gentleness. It is a strength that is bridled, that is consonant with that which it engages. That's, we learn that among each other. This community, to the extent that you are part of it, will force you to learn that. Humility and gentleness. And those pair go with the other pair. Patience and bearing with one another in love. You will be provoked around here. Uh, you will be disappointed. You will be confused. Um, you might even be disparaged, uh, discouraged, whatever it might be. You will be confronted with new opportunities to exercise forgiveness just by being part of us. Who Sign me up. But the moves of this dance among this people requires a concern and a patience for one another and a, and a willingness to say, I, I, I could react to you. I could really come down on you for the way in which you are treating me. And yet, I will exercise forbearance. Uh, some of you have heard that old Scottish saying, uh, be kind, because everyone you're encountering is probably going through a hard battle. And in many ways, that is true. And, and that's a motivation of sympathy. But I think an even more gospel-centered understanding of what that pair of moves entails is something I heard from, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer this week who said this, nothing that we despise in the other man is entirely absent from ourselves. The stuff that we most despise in somebody else, oh, I probably ought to pause and wonder, I wonder if I don't like that in me and I just am unwilling to see it in myself. If it, was, if it was necessary for Jesus to die that I might not be lost to the Lord, then perhaps there is something deep within me that is more serious than I might imagine. And if that is true, then going off on somebody at every opportunity in which they have slighted you or harmed you. Oh gosh, I know that that's a sermon in itself. Plenty of layers to that comment. But if this is true of me, then it's proper for me to extend a kind of forbearance to others at first glance of their harm. This is the moves. And, and what do all those point to? In dancing, as I said, there is one thing that uh, the two dancers who, who demonstrate utter grace and elegance are always mindful of, even if they're not thinking about it, and it's the center of gravity between them, their own and each other's together. And they are, there's always this through line that they're always taking into consideration. If they ever forget that and one you know, leans out too much or, or moves too quickly, then the whole dance falls apart. There is a center of gravity to any beautiful dance, and there is a center of gravity to any dance among this people and it's what Paul says is the point of all those moves. An eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's our calling. 
And, you know, that invites a whole level of conversation because sometimes, look, the nature of our life together is going to prompt strife. And sometimes that strife is necessary to get to the heart of things, to act with love. Strife comes up. To avoid strife at all costs, that's not love. Sometimes strife is necessary. But friends, I will tell you the way our hearts are ordered. There are plenty of moments in which we think it's all about doing the right thing, but what we really want is our pound of flesh. And we really just want to stir it up. And something about this dance and this move is to call us to that unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're going to talk about more of that next week. Friend, that's the, that's the moves, and this is the community in which we, we practice those moves. And what, is that whole, what does that whole thing presuppose? One, that we're in relationship with one another. Maybe we shouldn't assume that. Two, that relationships in a community of this nature and any community is inherently fraught with the possibility of a collision of wills. And three, that the fruit of the Spirit Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Where is that learned? On the proving grounds of this community. When you and I are tested. Look, it's easy to love when the other person is being all lovey-dovey. Isn't that sweet? The real test of love is when they're acting toward you in an unlovable way. Then you're being tested. And that's how the fruit of the Spirit is refined in us and grows in us and blossoms in us. The greatest temptation that you and I face in the modern American world is to be in a room and call ourselves a community when in fact we're just a crowd. And I'm borrowing a line here from a professor out in Abilene Christian University I've mentioned before, Miles Wernz. And he's honest enough to say, you go to most churches and what they are, they're a crowd. Now tomorrow night I hear there's a game out in California and it'll be loud and large, and huge, and that will be genuinely a crowd. They will all be pointed in the same direction. They will all be shouting and have a certain solidarity and their desire for that team to win. But it's unlikely that as they sit there that they will begin to share stories and say, you know what, let me tell you what I'm really burdened with. <laughs> because that's, a crowd doesn't do that. What then will hold us together that we might act with patience and forbearance and humility and gentleness. That's the third thing and the last thing I want to talk about. We've, we've talked about the dance. We've talked about the moves that are part of the dance and where it exists and where it's learned, but there's a beat to this. Adam Chacon has no idea how crucial his life is this morning because drummers are the most important musician on the team. I know. It's debatable, right? Thank you very much, right? I was a drummer once, so I'm being narcissistic for a moment. Because the drummer falls apart, the band falls apart. He holds the beat. Boom, 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 boom. If you lose him, you are dead. There is the beat that holds this dance together through these moves. And that's what you heard in verses 4 through 6. There's one body. One spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. There is so much there. I'm going to have to talk about that more next week than this week, but here's the point. Seven times you heard the word one. 
and threaded through all of those ones was what? The Trinity. You think we just say the creed because, well, we haven't done that one in a while. Let's do that one. No, because you heard every person of the Trinity, God in three persons, elaborated about who they are, what they do, and, and how we're to understand them. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Here, Paul does it in reverse order. What sets the beat for this dance, what holds us in community that we might be humble before him and seek to be unified in this body, even in our sinfulness, is that unity in community that is the Trinity. Remember when Andrew preached on chapter 2 many weeks ago, back in the first week of November, and we talked about how Jews and Gentiles were brought together into the same community, and that was like, whoa, watch out, Hatfields and McCoy is going to be together. Because in that moment, there was, there was historical ethical, cultural, and spiritual difference that was now being brought into the same family. It's like, oh my gosh, watch out. Collision. Using me, the list gets longer by the day of the things that you and I can end up disagreeing about and get sideways with each other about. And so what is Paul doing? As it was to them, so he is to us. Let me remind you of what you all share in common if Jesus is Lord to you. You are one body that the Spirit has brought together in that calling. Your faith has an object in the Lord, and therefore you identify with Him in baptism. And that God and Father who sent the Son and gave the Spirit that you might walk in faith, He's the God that's the Father of all families. That's what you share in common. You remember that little funky little ditty I, we came up with last year where we started to ask the question, are you making what you differ over more than what you share in common? Come on. It's alive and well, that impulse, to let that which we think is so important be the reason for saying, I'm done with you. And Paul is here to say, let me remind you of what you share in common. And then tell me about those things that you differ over, whether or not you think they really are a cause for division. That's the beat. What do we do with all that? Where do we go with this? I ask you rhetorically, are you part of a crowd or are you part of a community here? Is this people more of a crowd to you or more of a community to you? How, how shall I flesh that out for you? Um, so a week ago today was New Year's. We were in Charleston, South Carolina, my family and me, and we, uh, we slummed with the Anglicans at St. Philip's, and, and then we went and had lunch. And then we did something that I would have never done before. We uh, took a swim in the ocean at Sullivan's Island. It was cold. You can't tell. My, 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 my smile was frozen there. because um, I mean, it was a nice, I mean, the, the air was much warmer than the water at that moment. Oh, my gosh. It wasn't really a swim. It was more like, ah, and we're out. But we did it, right? If you know me, you know, you did that? Really? That doesn't sound like you. And you know what? You're right. And I'll tell you why I went. Because of a song. Because of a song that's kind of become an anthem for my family. Whenever it comes on, we just kind of sing it. And it's by Drew Holcomb. And it's called Dragons. And if you know that song, it's a, it's a song where he imagines having an encounter with his late grandfather who has come to remind him of certain things and he impart to him certain wisdom and, and try to remind him of, don't, don't, don't waste, don't let it go. And, and the chorus of the song goes like this. 
take a few chances, a few worthy romances, go swimming in the ocean on New Year's Day. So I did. Don't listen to the critics. Stand up and bear witness. Go slay all the dragons that stand in your way. 48 hours before January 1st, as we're driving around late at night, I say to my family, okay, family, you have 48 hours. On New Year's Day, we're going to go swimming in the ocean, but after we do, I want you to tell me what your dragons are. Tell me what your dragons are. What does he mean by dragons? Drew Holcomb's got his own mind, I'm guessing here. It's the things that haunt you and taunt you and terrify you. It's the things that are in you and part of your story and part of your history that makes you very difficult in relationships or makes you avoid relationships entirely. Some of those dragons are fears that grip you. Some of those dragons are sins that hold you. Some of those dragons are fears that are sins. And look, like that's its own sermon. But we all have them. I have them. And it's not a question that you ask once. In fact, I'm not even sure if it's an Like for some of you, if I say, what are your dragons? You would be able to tell me exactly what it is right now. And if I asked others of you that, you'd go, uh, can I get back to you? I'm not sure. I know there's something that's wrong. I just don't know what it is. We'll have to do it again because there's layers to our dragons. What are your dragons? We swam, and that night we talked, and it was a brief conversation, and it began where it ought to, but that's what it is. And so let me tell you this. Let me ask you this. What are your dragons? What are those things that keep you from walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, the places that you either will not admit Jesus into it or you think he has no place here, he'll never help. The dragon's thing fits with where Paul is going about what the dance is. It's the stuff that keeps you on the sidelines. What are your dragons? That's my first rhetorical question. And the second is this, who have you told? Miles Wurtz talks about churches that too often are crowds that mistake themselves for being in community. And his argument is, among others, that the way from being a crowd into being a community is through a regular practice of confession of your dragons of your fears and of your sins. And not just to people who are in ordained ministry, but to people whom you trust, who can hear them, who will then respond to you back with words that remind you of the gospel. There is no confession that is only spilling out your dragons. The only true confession that Jesus imagines for us and what Miles Warrens is arguing for is that confession in which you are deeply honest, but then you are solicitous of wanting people to remind you of what is good. That you are forgiven, reconciled, united, adopted, and beloved. So that you might persist. So that you might then make repentance. What are your dragons and who have you told? Miles Wurtz. If we trust the Christ who called us a body together, then we must trust those of the church to hear our confession and speak words of Christ back to us. Confession becomes the breakthrough to our life together. Through confession, we encounter one another with Christ mediating our relationship. So I'm going to ask Tony Owen to kind of step up here, and we're going to ask her what her... No, we're not. 
I know you can't tell just anybody. I know you have to be judicious. But if you're not telling anybody, then the dance, you got one leg hobbled. The Lord is good. And he calls us to this moment. And he asks us to know what that is. You can't slay dragons unless you first know and first believe that Jesus dealt with the fiercest one in your life. And somehow in that we find the courage and the love, maybe not to slay them, but at least to face them. That's where we're going. Let's pray. Father, um, uh, we're all gripped by things. There are all places we don't want to admit you to it. And we are in need of uh, what we do not have and maybe for which we have no words. But I would pray that you might uh, teach us in the weeks and months to come um, a little bit more of what it means uh, to dance in rest and refreshment of what you have done on our behalf. And that we might take that to heart and see you in it and bless those around us because you've released us from the things that haunt and taunt. I thank you for this people. I thank you for those who have found the courage to step and and reveal themselves. And I would pray that more might find new places to do that and new people in whom to find that word response and rest. But now I ask that you'd help us to sing and to sing with hope in whatever our moment. In Jesus' name, amen.